Welcome to the Order Up Show, the operations management podcast presented by Ops Analytica. Hey, it's Tommy from Ops Analytica. You know, there's that old saying in the restaurant industry that we all kind of whisper to ourselves at the bar, which is nobody cares about food safety until you kill someone. And unfortunately, it's true. And I don't care how much work we do on the supply chain and how much like food prep we move to these FDA, USDA regulated commissaries. It doesn't matter if at the store level, you're not cooling things properly, reheating things properly and holding things properly. Improper temperature control is the number one cause of foodborne bacteria growth, right? And that's how you get people sick. And the reality is, is that, and I've written about it in blogs, uh, the industry's dirty little secret is everybody's pencil whipping or not doing their temperature logs and their food safety checks. Like 99% of you, if you have paper logs, they are not getting done. So why don't we all just get together and go, hey, let's get on a digital platform and let's get some Bluetooth thermometers in here Let's get some IoT sensors in here and let's really just focus on really good temperature control in our stores. If you want to learn how Ops Analytica is the leader in this space, check us out, opsanalytica.com. Hey there, Order Up Show. I have an exciting new interview for you. Please welcome to the show, Mark Benchamol. How are you doing, Mark? Great, Tommy. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, Mark and I met at the Colorado Restaurant Show this year. We had a great, uh, great conversation, and uh, I wanted to bring him on the show because I think he's got a lot to offer the listeners uh, coming from a food safety perspective. Um, so Mark uh, is talking to us today from Leadville, Colorado. And Mark, just so you know, we ask the same five questions on every episode. And I want to get to that first question, which is my favorite, which is tell me what you do today but then take us through your career progression from your first job until now. Sure. I own and operate Food Shark, which is a food and alcohol safety management business that's been several years in the making. And I guess what I would say is that not that different from pest control services, which are not a necessity for most food service establishments, to keep a food safe uh, and prevent problems before they disrupt your business, you really need an experienced and well-qualified professional in your corner. And that's where I come in. So I've developed uh, Food Shark, which stands for Food Safety, Hygiene, and Regulatory Compliance, which is a bit of a word salad, but uh, I thought the acronym was a little clever, so I've, it stuck with me. And I guess in a nutshell, Tommy, that the main thing that I do is I provide uh, management services, so food safety management uh, systems, programs, um, training—you know, staff training specifically for becoming a, a certified food service manager or uh, alcohol safety certified um, server, like TIPS. You know, the TIPS program. Sure. So, those are the services that um, I, I tend to focus on. And the other thing is, I'm sort of first aid for health department inspections. Some of my former licensees when I was a, uh, a regulatory authority for local governments. And, and they would still call me now to this day and say that, well, I've had an inspection. It didn't go so well. And 
and they're asking me to do some things. And so that's where I come in with the first aid kit and um, say, yeah, sure, send me a copy of your report. I'll read it. I'll look at it, see what they want you to do, and I'll help guide you through that process. And so as far as the career arc, I became um, a registered sanitarian. That's the old word, the old term, actually. <laughs> registered environmental health specialist about 20 years ago, actually, this month. And 18 years ago, I added a graduate degree in environmental and occupational health to my uh, to complement my undergraduate degree, which was in the same major from Cal State University Northridge. And the fortunate thing for me was that was an institution that offered a fully accredited and nationally recognized uh, program in environmental health. And so I went on to work for health departments in four states, including Queensland, Australia, for about 20 years until recently when I I sort of convinced myself that I could do much more for the restaurant industry as an independent service provider than a than a local area health inspector. Now, I've done some I've had conversations with clients down in um, in Australia, and I had heard that Queensland was the toughest of the provinces for health inspections like they had the most um you know comprehensive health sanitation program is that true you know possibly i think there's a distinction between you know the 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 seven capital cities or, or states that have capital cities and then the and then the rural areas because i was in the largest non-coastal city in the in the country but that's not saying a whole lot. I think the whole regional population for Toowoomba was maybe around 150,000 people. So sure. uh, I think I think it's tougher in the in the major metropolitan areas, and then out you know out in the in the in the countryside or even the outback. It's it's who knows. I mean, you know, I I certainly had no idea what I was getting into. I I kind of stepped off the plane with my suitcase, and my my then then to be boss picked me up and we drove three hours to a place i'd never seen and it was it's quite it's quite an experience that you know you're getting introduced uh at work on your first day to people you've never met and being told that they're being told you'll be their supervisor uh, right. that certainly that was a challenge for me and 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 so but yeah i do think that you know the laws were i do remember that yes i i would say you're correct i mean there was certainly a lot of um uh you know there's a lot of uh regulatory language you know i had several acts i was responsible for that that you know were eight nine hundred pages in body and so it was uh intimidating to say the least but then when you actually go out with boots on the ground and do the job it, it can be very casual i worked with a few colleagues who had a just you know very casual loose way of talking to people and you know kind of the oh ah, she'll be right mate you know attitude so i mean <laughs> Yes and no to answer your question. <laughs> so I want to get more into your Australia, but did, is then then you came back from Australia, you started Food Shark. I had uh, done three years on a uh, sponsored work visa, and I liked it. I thought I was actually going to stay forever. I shipped everything I owned down there, um, and um, decided that the best thing to do for me was come back to California where I was a bit closer to my family and 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 even a girlfriend at the time and 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 I went back to work for the first county jurisdiction that hired me Ventura County and I but I I deviated a bit I was I was I left uh consumer protection or, or food inspections to do solid waste and I learned a, an awful lot about garbage recycling and you know this was an area that I had an interest in but also something that I felt like I could I could you know 
it could kind of tie into what I wanted to do in the future. Because in Australia, I earned an advanced degree in climate change. And I, I went on to start a PhD in that same field with that same institution from, from here in, in the States. And so I was looking for sort of that tie into sustainability, waste reduction, some, something that, you know, and I, I worked in solid waste for a couple of years, which was very unsexy, very, um, you know, like you, I, I probably got the job because I, I literally said in my interview, I, I want to work with trash. And I think I was the only person that ever said that to them. And they probably were shocked, but yeah, no, I, I actually, I liked going to the landfills. I liked talking to the licensees and working with the state department and I learned a lot and I, I still would do it again. Um, and, but, you know, there were a lot of challenges. We had major wildfires um, that, that generated hundreds of thousands of tons of, of fire debris and waste. And, and then, you know, you're, you're sort of looking at that as a, as a regulator and then as a, as a jurisdiction, even the state, it was unprecedented for them to handle, you know, that volume you know, of waste and certain types of things that when, when it burned, they, they couldn't even figure out what the chemicals were that were created were in a laboratory. They said, they literally send back the lab reports and this happened in the Tubbs fire in Northern California. They said, well, we just simply don't know what this stuff is and, and make sure no one goes onto this burn site and, and tries to look for valuables or anything. And, but I digress. It, it was very educational. And so I, yeah, I did that for a few more years. I, I um, had an itch um, in 2018 and I, I, you know, to scratch it, I applied for this job in Colorado and, and never had been to Colorado in my life. And um, a man named Ray Mary, you know, interviewed me, hired me. And um, I, I, when I got here and I saw Eagle, Colorado, I was I was I was I was just completely taken by it. I, I the mountains, you know, and everything. It just the river and and I was and I the decision was, well, if this if this man offers me a job um, before he finishes his sentence, I'll be saying yes, and I'll already be thinking about how to get my stuff out here. And so I came out in 2018, worked for uh, roughly three more years in 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 my field of practice, but COVID sort of, you know, I think through a lot of us, a, a curveball. And, and um, I was already questioning, you know, what I was thrown into at the time. But then I think also it was, um, you know, counties were, you know, dumping salaries of people that, that, you know, they were looking at it too and thinking, my gosh, that financially we, we could be in, you know, real dire straits in a few years if, if this, if this doesn't improve. And so, um, for better or for worse, I we separated. I was I kind of went into food shark as as sort of like initially like well how the heck am I going to sell food safety at a time where people are just trying to keep the lights on and and they're not thinking that food safety is an essential service. So I've got to I've got to figure this out and create it and market it so it it is an essential service and I truly believe it is. Um, but you know it, it it's been a it's been a, a it's, it's a road I'm still on and trying to figure out and I'm two years in now. Absolutely, I mean. You know, my platform is a food safety operations, well, it can be food safety, but it's an operations management platform that you use at all levels of your organization to, you know, manage repeatable process and food safety. A lot of it's just repeatable process. Are you defrosting correctly? Are you uh, cooling, you know, hot mm. soup and foods down correctly? Are you checking to make sure that, you know, everything's temped correctly and that it's safe and all that kind of stuff? And um, we tried to sell on food safety for years and in the restaurant industry, and we never got anywhere with it. Um, and it, which is so surprising 
like what's funny about it is that if you talk to anybody who's not in the restaurant industry about that they would go food safety like if you hired a consultant and said what should we sell on they'd be like hey you gotta sell on food safety man of course you do because they assume that restaurant people care about food safety um but i think what the restaurant industry has done as a whole is they've attacked food safety at the producer and the commissary level right and so at the store level in most restaurants unless you're at a fine dining restaurant that's making a lot of things from scratch but if you're at a chain restaurant those guys aren't really cooking so much as they're assembling and um you know they're assuming that the food safety was handled at the commissary that made the soup or the salsa or whatever right so it, it, it i think you I, I really, I'd sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, I think oh. you're really hitting at the heart of what I'm trying to do is, which is, you know, I, I, I've looked at this deeply over the last five years and, and just sort of really started to think about like, you know, why isn't the rubber meeting the road here? Why is the, it's science, but it's not rocket science. So why aren't people getting the message? And then, you know, one thing that really stood out to me with my recent um, training to become a, an alcohol uh, training provider was, you know, they said when you're when you're checking IDs, you know, you need three skills, you need, or, you know, three abilities, you need, you need the confidence to ask the person for their ID, you need the knowledge to then know what to look for what to do with it. And then you need to be consistent, you need to do it that way each and every time. And it really struck me because I thought, well, doesn't that apply to food safety as well? I mean, you need the confidence to be proactive, to look around the kitchen, to identify hazards, take a temperature. You, you need the knowledge to know what to do with that information or how to do it correctly in the first place. And then you need to be consistent. You can't just do this like the night before the health inspector is coming in. You've got to do this on a day-to-day -day basis. You've got to operationalize it. So, you know, and, and then I started thinking, well, okay, now let's take that and let's, let's talk about that for people and kind of put that in, in, in dot point format in a really simple, like, Hey, just you do these three things and do them, do them this way, do them consistently. And you're on the road. Now you are on the road to making this a part of what you do and maybe even a part of your culture, which is also a very, you know, that, that word, but it's like, that's also a really big part of it is like, well, what's your food safety culture? It's either a good one or not a good one. You, you do have one. And so then we need to dive into that and see, you know, what does that look like for you? But yeah, no, I, you really hit at the heart of what I'm trying to do, which is like, well, what's the missing link here? What's the, what's needed to kind of, you know, get to escape velocity with this and make this something that's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, sure. We can do that. Bring it on board. Give us a written procedure to follow. Give us some SOPs, give us a checklist. And then we can, you know, and I don't want to jump ahead because you're going to, I think you're, you might be yeah. asking me a question related to this, but that's actually, you know, if this, if the question comes up about what do I think is missing, that's going to be part of my answer. I do have some ideas on things that, you know, I think, Hey, this is, this is, these problems have solutions, but it just needs somebody willing to sit down and, and, you know, put it into practice. So. Well, and what we figured out too, and the reason why we weren't able to sell on it is because you know what they talk about selling anything right you have to solve somebody's immediate pain right mm -hmm. you have to identify that it is a pain you have to make it immediate and then you got to twist the screws at them until that pain is so so powerful 
that they then can are willing to fight the inertia of inaction and take action. Like it took Chipotle, you know, all the problems they had in 2015 and 2016 to take food safety seriously. You know, I have a, a funny story. A buddy of mine who actually just retired, I saw that on LinkedIn. He, I worked with him at Quiznos, and then he went from Quiznos to Taco Bell, and then from Taco Bell to Chipotle, and. Um, and he did that right when we had built our software, 2014. And I went to him. I was like, hey, man, I got this great software. I was actually in New York City visiting another one of our clients at the time, our beta client. And I was like, we had dinner. I'm like, you got to take this to the Chipotle guys and let them know what we can do with it. And he like told me, he's like, dude, they are not, they don't believe that they're a typical restaurant company. This is 2014. That wow. they don't believe in checklists. They believe that if you hire the right people and you train them to do the right things and you empower them, then everything is going to be fine. And that's and he goes. And if I go in there, having just come from Taco Bell, I was one of the he was one of the first directors wow. outside the company. They are wow. going to think that I'm just trying to turn them into Taco Bell. Cut to they are Taco Bell now. They hired the CEO from Taco Bell. They moved to Southern California where Taco Bell's headquartered, Chipotle. And, uh, but he was like, I can't do it. But their culture at that time was the culture that they had started with. And I had talked to a Chipotle store manager and he kind of let me in on the deal. Basically from zero to 500 units, they were doing great. They were promoting from within, they were, you know, training people up and their culture was working really, really well. But then, yeah. you know, the McDonald's money. They started to grow. They got out. They were the darlings of Wall Street. They started hammering, 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 and they started to grow faster than they could promote people in from within. So then they start bringing all these other restaurant people in from Applebee's and Bojangles and all these other companies just to fill these jobs because they couldn't promote fast enough. And those guys came in and said, wait, you don't have any checklists. You don't have any uh, extra like oversight rules. Kick ass. And they just started like, <laughs> They just were like, this is a vacation job. We're always busy and I don't have to do a bunch of like the oversight stuff that the other chain I came from did. And that's where they went from 500 to 2000 restaurants. Roughly those are like made up numbers, you know, they could be off, but they got to some point between, you know, 300 and a thousand where they simply could not promote enough from within and bring their cultured people up. And they were growing too fast. They started bringing people in and that's when the standards started to get laxer. And, um, but like, you know, they didn't care. We, we're not a checklist company. Then one year later, they have a series of massive food things, you know, and obviously they bounce back, but the only reason they bounce back is because they had such a strong brand and had that happened to Buckaroo Burritos or any other <laughs> company, it would have put them out of business, you know? But Almost they, certainly. Most they're certainly. The, they're the Tesla <laughs> restaurants, right? So their brand I, so that echoes that echoes what I was told um, some time ago because that that outbreak and you're referring you may be referring to uh, 2015 Simi Valley California that was not only in in the jurisdiction I worked in my colleague uh, worked on that it was in his actual territory and he we were you know we went out I went out with him as one of the first people on that investigation. But prior to that, it was a Sunday and I was driving around in the car and I heard on some LA based radio station, um, something about something happening there. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, 
well, tomorrow morning when I get to the office, this is going to be all the buzz. This is everything is they're going to, you know, probably have a staff meeting and, and brief everybody. And sure enough, as it unfolded, um, you know, and there were a lot of failures. There were a series of failures on all sides. But the thing that sticks out to me the most with that with that incident is that um, norovirus, you know, it, it never came from the food itself. It, it was ejected uh, from, from the stomach. Yeah, the employee and 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 the other thing is, if you Google Chipotle, I mean that that is still out there today. They've tried to scrub it. I think <laughs> who wouldn't try to scrub it from the internet? But you're not going to. I mean, it's and that stigma just never goes away. And so think about that for such a large chain. And then if you're if you're an independent, uh, you know, single operator, you you've got no chance of coming back from something like that. And that and that's you know. So there's a lot of things that when I talk about food safety, there's some there's some points I try to overemphasize and, you know, that, that sort of speaks to a couple of them is that, you know, in, in, in the least, in the, in the very least you'll be implicated and maybe, you know, one or two party illness, the very most you, you, you just be wiped off the face of the earth, your business, you'll be put out of business because the scrutiny, the media scrutiny, all these things. Well, and I sort of, I, you know, I don't use the fear model, but trying to paint a picture quickly for someone about how this could potentially go and um, I'm getting more practice with that now because the alcohol safety, you know, training has an element of that as well. You know, you overserve somebody, they go out, they drive onto the sidewalk and take out some some pedestrians, and then it's all over for you. And everybody will be liable: the server, the the licensee, the property owner. So I think it's important, you know, once in a while to remind people that hey, the the consequences, the the risk. I say, you know, the risk of this happening to you is low. The consequences can be severely high. So, you know, figure out how you want to interpret that. But that's sort of what the equation might look like. <laughs> and I'll give you some more ammo to it, and I have a blog on this too. And you might want to do your own independent research. But one thing we found back in like 2015 when we first launched this company, we were doing we were blogging about this stuff was that your uh, liability insurance, if you're a restaurant owner, um, it says that you have to be following the, the policies and procedures of your like local jurisdiction when it comes to you know, health and safety. And if you're not doing that, that it can nullify your policy. So you might think, well, mm -hmm. uh, it's not a big deal. I've got liability insurance, but you need to go in and, and, and investigate that because if your local district, which I assume, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, every local health department says you should be checking some, you should be temping your food and you should be confirming your sanitizer solutions and just those basic things, right? Like they, like you're supposed to be doing that. So if you're not doing that, or if you're part of a chain and you're not following their procedures, the insurance company is just looking for a reason not to pay out. And so if they can prove that you weren't doing anything in a separate lawsuit, by the way, you know, if they can go, Hey, we're not going to pay out because we investigated ourselves and we didn't see any temp logs. We didn't see any sanitizer. We didn't see any, you know, uh, uh, expiration dates on anything therefore you're not following the procedures of good food safety we're not gonna we, we're nullifying your policy you know that yeah, now you're, yeah. you're there's ruin like you thought well at least the insurance will cover it for five and a half five hundred thousand dollars nope you know no they're going to they're going to ask whether or not you were following your duties as a person in charge under the food code i guess that's kind of like 
you know, the, the terminology or the language of the food code. But in a nutshell, it's it's you, you do have responsibilities there. And as a licensee, you know, there's this little fine print at the bottom of your application for a food license says, I will, you know, however it's worded, I will uh, follow the rules and regulations of the local jurisdiction or the, you know, whatever it says. And you sign that and you sign that just not even really thinking about it. But there is, you know, there is that part of it there because, um, you know, it, it, it you know, when it when it when it goes sideways, everybody's going to come around and, and, you know, the attorneys are going to want to throw everyone in the mix and they're going to be you know asking questions about who didn't do what, who was negligent, who, you know, and, and that is not. So, like I said, you get one good crack at this on the prevention side. And then after that, everything else is is reactive. You're, you're then on the back foot trying to figure out who who came to work sick or who did this wrong or who did that wrong. But at that point, it's it's. You know, it's all it's all coming at you so fast that you probably you may not even have a chance to save your business because, you know, it, it's just and the health department, you know, I, I have to be careful here. But I say it because I, I, you know, my opinions are a little bit colored by my 20 my experience in, in the field. But they're sort of your silent partner in this. They're not, you know, the, it, the inspection is just a means to an end. It's, it's validation that you're following the regulations and they get to check their box, say they're doing their job under the contract they have with the state or if they're they're not under contract, just whatever their, you know, obligation is locally to fulfill the inspection requirements that they have. So they're really there to, you know, they, they, there is a function and a purpose, but I think the, in the old days, the sanitarian would, would come in and, and get their hands very dirty and, and actually demonstrate techniques to you and, and, you know, and, and educate you and provide assistance and resources. But, but, you know, I think, and it's part of the questions you may ask me, but I think that that's a missing, you know, a piece that's going by the wayside these days with, for, for a variety of reasons, really. But, you know, they're not, you, you still have good sanitarians, good inspectors out there, people who care a lot and really do want to help. Um, but I can't say that it's the, it's the overarching model these days. So you really got to think about this, you know, like in terms of like, I got to protect you know, CYA and protect my interests here. And how am I going to do that? Does it mean getting a third party service provider in here? Does it mean going really high level and spending a lot of money on training? And what, what does that mean? But, but in the end, it's, it brings us to a very important point. And I use this in my trainings all the time is the bottom line, the number one thing you're trying to do on a moment to moment basis, day to day, year to year is prevent foodborne illness. You can boil it all down. To just that, everything fits under that. You're preventing foodborne illness. So, and then we can talk about the ways you do that. But if you don't understand that and you don't buy into that, then then we have a different problem, and we have to start somewhere else. So, sure. Well, and I mean, like once again, the reality is is that it's not painful for people on a daily basis, and there's there's a lot of reasons for that. No, I mean there are some institutional things. You know, the, the reasons are this one, the health inspector gets there once a year. If you're lucky, if you're in Northern California, it's 18 months to two years, right? The reason mm -hmm. why people, the health inspectors aren't coaching as much anymore is because there's a shortage of health inspectors and they can't, they don't have the time. They have to go in, bang out their thing, get some fines. If, if the guy's bad and get out of there, go to the next one. So you're not seeing your health inspector every day, right? Even if you're a big chain restaurant, like a Taco Bell or, you know, uh, any kind of like uh, Burger King accounts, you're only getting inspected by a third party inspector once a quarter. And the biggest thing that comes out of that is if you fail it, they make you pay for another inspection, which is like 200 bucks. Right. So, right. so there, there are no consequences to it. 
Number two, people get sick all the time from eating out. Right. And most of the time, 99% of the time, they just are on the can five minutes after they ate something, right? And you can say that that could have been their lunch and it just took six hours to get there or whatever. But usually it's what you just ate, didn't agree with you, something was wrong with it. But then it stops there, you know, like it doesn't go any further. Number three, you can't report that you had diarrhea to the health the health department. They're going to make you go to the doctor and get like an actual diagnosis of health insurance or health uh, foodborne illness, excuse me, which, you know, if you feel like crap, you don't want to do that unless you're really sick, like terribly sick, like salmonella or something really E. coli where you're like dying for a couple of days, you know? So you're not going to go do that unless you just have nothing better to do. And so like, that's, that's a bureaucratic block that somebody got put in place that like stops restaurants from ever feeling the effects of the foodborne illness that they are dishing out on a daily basis because people aren't willing to go over that hump and take the time unless they're that sick. But then when they're that sick, well, which I guess what it does is it keeps the diarrhea cases out of your record, I guess. Yeah. But in general, like obviously like then in Ohio, which Chipotle, when people had like E. coli or salmonella or whatever, enough people got sick that like sick, sick enough that they went to the doctor and then the health department could track it and go, wait a second, there's been 50, 50 salmonella cases in the, in like this, you know, County area. Let's do the math. Oh wait, there's all Chipotle, right? Whatever. But like, so those are all things that stop the, the restaurants from feeling any pain from not having a food safety program. And then because nowadays they're just assembling food and most of it's coming from other places they really have dumbed it down enough where all they have to do is reheat stuff properly. We can just reheat this properly to 165 for 15 seconds and then hold it at 135 or 140 and above. We're done. You know, we don't have to do anything else. Keep this cold stuff cold, reheat this properly. And you know, that's all they have to do. Yeah. I definitely, I mean, you, you definitely hit on a key, uh, you know, a couple of key points there. I just want to circle back to you for the listeners because um, you, you said 99%, and that's statistically that's been shown to be the, the percent of people that don't report their foodborne illness. So, yeah. you, you know, your one in 100 is the tip of the iceberg. And I, you know, and many times throughout my career, I've, I've, I've heard on the other side, you know, I give a report or discuss a violation and, 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 the, and, the, and the person I'm speaking with will say, well, we've never made anyone sick. We've been in business for 25 years. And I'll say, well, how do you know, you know, and, and from there, <laughs> the answers yeah. can be very interesting, but yeah, the 99%. So you, for every one person, you know, about there could be 99 more out there that you don't know about. And if you think in terms of an outbreak and, and children and elderly folks and, and all those sensitive populations, and it's really, really scary. And the other thing you mentioned was, you know, on the, it, it's true. Health departments are focused these days on, the quantity of not inspections, not the not so much of the quality. So, you know, if you're really keen on on getting uh, to, to the heart of the issue, you're going to look at outcomes. Like, well, did we improve a process? Did we change behavior? Did we change attitudes? Did we, you know, that's the end goal. Not right. doing five inspections or five visits in a day and making it look all pretty on paper and showing that hey, you know, we're justifying these these high staff salaries because these people are going out and, and doing X number of inspections a day and, and you know, pr 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 uh, protecting the public health. So um, 
you know, anyway, those two points I wanted to I wanted to um, emphasize along with you, and then I wonder if this might be a good segue for a question about food poisoning itself. Well, yeah, real quick, I'm gonna say one thing, and then I want to talk about it because Mark is uh, foreshadowing a story. But I talked to the the, the old, an old VP uh, at Sterotech uh, uh -huh. about their business, right? Because Sterotech's a big third party inspector. And, you know, she was like the head of that department and she was just like, hey, you know, we know we're not going to audit people to like better restaurants. So what we like, we're not going to audit people to like being great. All we look at the audit is, is an opportunity for us to go and really train for a couple of hours, you know. Mm. So when we do find things that are wrong. We can stop and tell the employees that are there, hey, this was wrong and this is why it's wrong. And this is what's dangerous. And here's what you got to do to fix it, you know. Mm. Mm. And so that's their attitude. And, um, you know, it's true. The, the health inspections, you know, it's once every eight to 18 months. You're not changing anyone's world, you know. So, yeah, I, oh, yeah, I agree. And I, I you know, I another uh, another takeaway through the years for me was that um, I used to in my early years, I felt, you know, quite important and, and maybe even a bit powerful at times. You, know, you get this is badge and you have this authority and you go in and you can you can you know say don't do this and and i need you to do that but you know you're there like a fraction of a percent of the total time they're in business for any given year so what you care about then is what they're doing when you're not there right because if you understand and then if you understand that once you come to realize that it changes your whole approach it's like well you know i've got a, a very small opportunity here, a very uh, you know short opportunity, I should say, to make a really good impression and establish credibility and to motivate this person because that's going to determine whether or not they're going to you know do what what is needed when I'm not here. And then so then that changes the way for me at anyway, it changed the way I did the job. Fundamentally, changed the way I did the job, but it also put me at odds with a lot of uh, colleagues that were not uh, doing you know, the, the work in that way that I thought it should be done. And that a few of my mentors agreed that that's how they thought it should be done. So then there was this divide and then, and then that divide grew, grew bigger because, um, you know, up, up in the ivory towers, they don't really know what you're doing. The, the, some of them, it, they don't need, some may not even know what an environmental health specialist is. And so you, you kind of, then you're, you're, you know, you, Ultimately, everybody answers to this higher authority, the, the county CEO or board of commissioners, board of supervisors. But those folks only really know you're there when there's a major issue or something like, you know, Chipotle going on. Right. <laughs> and, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, who's that inspector? What's their name? What did they do when they were there? What didn't they do? Let's see those reports. Were they writing the violations? And then all of a sudden. So, no, you're right. You're just to go back, circle back and agree with you on the health inspections. And, and again, and, you know. <laughs> Um, not, not to steal any thunder from you, but with the question about, and I could answer it a number of ways. It, and if you, if you were to ask me what, what's not, what's broken in the industry or what does industry need to do more, you know, I certainly in the government sector, um, I think that there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of room for improvement there in terms of, you know, putting these services more front and center. And, and I recall that some, you know, some health departments used to ride along with, you know, they used to have a reporter ride along with them for the day. And then that reporter 
would do a story about, uh, you know, local health inspectors ensuring that your food is kept safe. And that would get in the headlines in the paper. And then people in the community would, would then all of a sudden see there, there's this person doing this thing. And again, I, I, you know, I, I worry for the future of the workforce because I think we're, the identity is being lost a little bit. Um, or it's at least not being strengthened in the way it needs to be in these times, but I digress. So yeah, inspections, Hey, you know, and you can do them. You know, I think it's what's it, it, even more important. I mean, the blueprints out there, you can get a copy of a food code inspection report and then use that as your cheat sheet for, you know, like a daily checklist, right? It's like, Hey, every day I just got to, cause I'm often asked for checklists and it's like, well, yeah, sure. We can put one together, but you, it already exists. <laughs> it's yeah. a matter of what, what you're really asking me for, I think is you want, you want, you know, how do we operationalize this? Who do we, you know, I'd say, well, you need a food safety leader. You need a, a person who can, you know, supervise this process and, and and they don't necessarily have to do it. They can delegate it to someone else, but you got to make sure that certain things are being done without fail on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and my recent training, I've incorporated about five things that I think are just, you know, your must win food safety priorities, I call them. And if you, if you don't win these priorities, then your risk level goes up substantially. So, yeah. So that's the, all, all about, yeah, go ahead. So real quick, tell us about your recent, you got poison, food poison. Like we had to push this uh, podcast back because you like wrote me back and you're like, dude, I got foodborne illness. If you can imagine that and I'm out. So talk about true that. story. Quickly. Don't <laughs> we won't mention the name of the company, but what do you think yeah. you ate? How long did it take to set in? You know, just let us know what, what went on and what you had to do. Uh, with it. A true story. So, uh, you know, well, <laughs> severe food poisoning is, is a great equalizer of sorts. I remember thinking this while I was laying in bed um, or perhaps on, on the floor of the bathroom, but it, it really doesn't care who you are, what you are, where you are. It, it's going to do whatever it's going to do to your body. And, and there really isn't a whole lot you can do about it. And, and I was reminded of that a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll come out of it with no scar tissue, meaning that, you know, no complications or no lifelong conditions such as reactive arthritis. But, you know, but if you aren't so lucky, you'll find yourself asking a doctor, well, am I going to live or die? And, and that's a question which they might not even be able to answer. And so it, it can be frightening. And I had a few moments where I, you know, I'm trying to put all the clues together and, and having investigated hundreds of cases of foodborne illness, I was struggling to put my finger on it um, clearly. And, but what I came up with just based on the timeline and my symptoms was the stomach bug or norovirus or winter vomiting disease or whatever that, you know, the various names it has. And, um, you know, and, and I, and I only kind of came to that as a likely conclusion because I actually, when I bounced back, I, I, you know, recovered, fairly quickly so it came in like a lion and it it i wouldn't say went out like a lamb but you know you you were back on your feet and and i was and anyways 48 hours later i was feeling like okay i'm 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 all right everything's good now and um so yeah so <laughs> i guess what i would say along these lines is that as i did it's really important to observe whatever cues your your body gives you so that you can you know, decide if and when you need you need to seek medical attention, because a lot of deaths result from the patient just waiting too long to seek care. So when they finally do, there there's not a whole lot that can be done. And also, if you're a victim, you really want to be screened by your doctor or public health nurse 
uh, and you should be reporting it to the health department um, because you might you might be the index case or you might be patient zero and and your reporting the illness could be instrumental in preventing a lot more cases like yours. For me, you know, I, thinking it was norovirus, I said I thought to myself, well, it's going to be impossible to put my finger on the cause. I could have picked up. Um, I could have picked up the germ on a surface. I could have, you know, it could have come from a lot of places. Um, it did come following a meal. It came within about six hours of eating a meal outside the home. And so I did think a lot about that. But the onset of norovirus is typically, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's closer to 12 hours. And so I, I was hit hard quickly. And, but that, but it does that too. So it just was, yeah. And then, you know, Tommy, when I told a few people that know, that, that know me or even a few my customers, yes, yeah, sorry, I didn't get back to you last week. I had food poisoning and they, they were shocked. Like, what, you? Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> you like the norovirus germs somehow on like the ladle of something and you, you just did it haphazardly. I said, you know, which is interesting too, because I'm no less immune than anyone else. And and it was interesting that people would think that somehow I'm I'm, you know, you know, protected from it, I guess, in a way, but no. <laughs> well, you know, you know what's interesting is that like with norovirus too, it's it's like it is just like you got bad luck. Like some somebody went to work. And actually, this is probably I would this would be interesting to track. I don't know if you could call your friends that still work. I uh, wonder if foodborne illness cases have gone up as the labor shortage has gotten worse because there's so much pressure for the people that are working to keep coming to work even though they don't feel good because they know, you know, there's that camaraderie of the people that are working. That is, if I don't show up, man, these guys are gonna get their butts kicked. They get that that. You know, because that's how you got it. Someone was sick and working. Yeah, right. If you, I think it probably a number of factors, but if if where you're starting from is already knowing that it's an extremely contagious virus, one in three people walking around on the street are carrying it in their bodies. It's not easily killed by common disinfectants. And, and and the list goes on. And if you know those things, and that's where you're starting from, then year to year, as the as the variant changes a little bit, um, you know, you're even more more alarmed. And and I would say to restaurants, COVID, alarming as it is, it's not your number one enemy because norovirus can bring a restaurant to its knees, to its breaking point, to its ruin, uh, you know, far more easily. Uh, than than COVID can, which is was always known from from the beginning that it it's not transmitted through food. So then, you know, there's some precautions we got to take, some things we got to do for sure. But it's it's different in the sense that norovirus is in that category, you know, um, of 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 one of the six that are commonly transmitted um, by by food handlers to to uh, to people. So there, if you're starting there, then yeah, you're 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 you have to have a very healthy uh, respect for this this virus and 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 the mortality the the death rate is not high at all but but the consequences you know the illness the morbidity the number of people sickened by it every year they say it causes about half of all foodborne illness um, outbreaks or incidents and that's a very high number for an agent that's typically not common in food although it was originally discovered in oysters but 
um, you know, got its name from a very infamous outbreak in Norwalk, Ohio, a long time ago. But um, you know, without getting too nerdy with it, I, I digress because I just I always go. You know, it's a good topic. Probably is what got me, and I, I stress it on my trainings and when I'm with you know speaking to restaurants and and food employees that hey, this thing is is always out there, and you always have to be aware of. You know, it's it's not an easy thing to kill and it's it's something that you know is your customers won't know that maybe it didn't come from the food they'll just think oh my gosh i ate a meal i got really sick uh here, here we go yeah go to facebook go to twitter do you know all that stuff happens and and we you know we never know where it really truly came from sometimes we do if it's a if it's a larger scale outbreak we can trace it back to the source but but even there you have to have really good investigative skills and and techniques and and it, it often just never goes that far because it's it's just there's too many variables and you know, a lot of times the end conclusion is well we don't know really how it started and we don't really know you know where it came from we just know it's it's widely out there and it could come from a lot of places and but you know cruise ships that's what people identify with because you know what what happens on a cruise ship a lot of drinking and a lot of seasickness, and that that means a lot of throwing up. And, and where are you going to go on a on a cruise ship to get away from that? You, you you're going to get in a little raft and row away. You, you know that's that's your only choice, really. So that's why it's brought cruise the cruise ship and the cruise line industry to to uh, also to um, to a point where they had to address it. Well, we've done a couple of Disney cruises because I have young kids and. Um... You know, when we first went to the Disney cruise, there was always an employee at the buffet at every restaurant, except for the ones up, even up on deck. Actually, every restaurant, before uh -huh. you walked up to the counter, they handed you a disinfectant wipe. Wipe your hands up. Then when they retrofitted the ships, they started adding like hand washing stations in front of the buffet. So you have to wash your hands by, well, be watched washing your hands by an employee before you go into the buffet, which I mean, just mm. pure genius, right? Like, come on, like, let's just. Get your hands clean for at least a couple of minutes before you go touch a bunch of handles that everyone else is touching. And then I think they're rotating their handles like every hours anyway. They're going out with new spoons and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, they seem to have the least amount of those, but they also have something that you manage too. People aren't getting hammered on the Disney cruise. The Disney cruise isn't the boat you go on to get, you know, it's not like a celebrity right. where you're with a bunch of spring breakers and you're just doing shots the whole time. You know right. what I mean? It's yeah. it's a different vibe there. Um, yeah. All right, cool. So we've talked a lot. Of, we we've we've covered a couple of subjects here. Let's go to question number two real quick. Sure. What what is the big project or initiative that you're working on right now for your business? I am definitely working on the food safety management side of things. So that's going to be um, training number one. Uh, food service manager and alcohol safety and then and then food safety management programs so you know person you know understands the importance of food safety but hasn't been able to put it fully into practice wants to comply with food code you know requirements but how do we do that and i think that there is a blueprint but it also needs to be tailored to the type of business and then to the you know the culture and the learning preferences of the people that are there and so i try to tailor all my training to the needs of the licensee and their staff and so we try to you know we approach it uh, you know in in a very professional way i'm not a believer of cartoons and and shtick to kind of sell the sell the 
the idea of food safety, I, I you know, it is, a, I, th I think it is a serious topic and I give it that uh, serious tone when I, when I talk to folks and, and because I want to leave an impression that, you know, this is really, um, it, it needs to be a very important part of what you do. It doesn't need to be all of what you do. It needs to be a part of it, but a very important part of it. So focusing on that right now and looking to the future is sort of maybe uh, some, you know, technology to put this into place and, and maybe, you know, um, maybe a print, you know, uh, operational plan in print that the company owns and, and can, you know, can use and build upon. But I really, it, it's kind of an open book in the sense that, and I think that's what makes it so neat is that it's a sort of an open book for any, any restaurant, a bar, food service establishment to say, look, here's where we are. Here's where we would like to get to. Here's the issues that we have. Here's the challenges. And then we go from there. And the number one thing I like to, you know, I start off with when I meet with licensees, well, what's your biggest challenge right now? A lot of times it's, it's workforce issues, but sometimes they, you know, recently that it's come up more than once as well. I'm having difficulties with my health inspector and the reasons for that could, you know, they they could, they could vary. And, but we, so we start there and say, well, okay, well, let's, let's work from there. And that's sort of my, my big projects right now are just kind of, improving the model and making it better all the time because i think that again that it's not something that you ever get to a point where you say hey this is this is perfect now let's roll it out and we won't need to ever change it i think that you know um things in the restaurant industry are very dynamic lots of moving parts and challenges that you need to you know be able to um you know look ahead and, and see what's coming at you and so i try to come up with something that uh, again, I think the idea is that just like Ecolab comes in and services the dish machine and Orkin comes in and does the pest control, there's a very good chance you might need a similar person to come in and do food safety. But what I'm, what the model that I'm working on is I, I want to, I try to do it in, in steps. So the first time I come in and do a, a an audit, uh, that person is going to observe how I do it. The second time I do the audit, I want them to participate in the audit and would do it together and then the third time we do it i want them to lead and i'm just going to observe and give them feedback and the whole idea with that model is that i want to transfer the ownership of this ultimately over to you and you may say no i'm i'm too busy i've got i really want to keep you on board and have you continue to do this and that's fine that's great it benefits me but in the end it's not there's nothing secretive about this i want to transfer that knowledge to that owner to that manager to that person in charge so that they can then you know, do that because really they're the ones that are there and everyone else is going to look to them or to that food safety leader to see what they're doing. And they're going to, and they're going to kind of, you know, go as that person goes. So that's sort of, that's the model. That's what I'm building. Nice. Well, and you kind of said it there too, because restaurants are so dynamic and it isn't just one thing, there's specials, there's changes in the menu, there are LTOs, you know, you really do have to create a food safety culture and you can't keep all of the food safety knowledge with one guy right it's not like we have one guy who's in a lab coat that walks around and is doing everything it's got to get traded out to every single line employee and like you said there's a top five and we should probably catch on the top five um at some point in the in the podcast maybe not this exact second but you know you know every it's like it's kind of like when it's like Back when, like, you know, see something, say something, right? Right after 9 11. Like, if you see something suspicious, tell us, like, let us know so we can try to address it. 
we kind of have to train every single employee front of the house and back of the house hey look for these five things look for things that are not at the right temperature because that's the number one cause for food safety right is that right hot too cold something cold is too hot like look for these things and if you see them point it out you know and then 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 it becomes leadership's then it, then it falls back on the leader the kitchen manager the chef to go you're right that is too cold thank you for telling me i will go heat it up properly and then that's where the culture gets built right is like right everybody's looking for stuff but then the people who get the feedback hey that's wrong they need to go fix it you know and that's the same thing on the front house hey your thumb's touching that dude's steak move your thumb you know <laughs> like get it off his steak anyway. yeah no and, and i think you know what you you need i i think with that it's it's a lot of times and i've i've heard that going on and it's it, it it was always interesting as an inspector to see the during an inspection you know a chef would you know or a manager would take on a certain persona of, of like you know all of a sudden they would be in command you know <laughs> giving orders and directions to staff and i i wonder well is that how it is always or just because i'm here and and so but you you can't just say do this you need a reason behind it you need and and it can be a very layperson's reason, you know. Oh, because you know this is, you know, that surface might get contaminated, and and so, but it needs to be something more than that's not how we do things around here. Or you know, I, I think people they need an understanding of of why it's important, and then you know, hopefully, if you can do that in an in a skilled way, that it, you're also kind of you're motivating them, you're giving them you know a principled reason and you're you're sending the message that it's important to us but we want to help you understand why and we're not we're not just you know giving you an order here so there's a lot of how you go about it and and i think that that's that's important too because and i'm always reminded of that because there was a there was a time although it was some time ago but there was a time when none of this was the language that i spoke i, I mean it was all foreign to me i was uh, you know, a student in the classroom learning about, you know, food science and, and food safety principles and other things as well. But, you know, at that time, if somebody came up to me with the language that I often use as an inspector, they, I would have been, you know, like, uh, English, please, uh, you know, come again. And so I think that there's, you know, it's important, that part of it's important too. And hopefully the listeners are, you know, you know, getting some, some value in this in, in, in terms of like, it is, even for me, even after 20 years, I'm still finding, you know, looking for ways and finding them of, of improving how I speak, improving how I talk about this, this concept. And, and again, it's like, you know, it comes in stages. It was like, you know, the norovirus thing was really eye-opening to me. I read a, a, a report from the Australian equivalent of their Centers for Disease Control on, on that topic. And that's where I got that number, one in three people typically walking around with that bug. But you spit that back out to someone and, and it may go in one ear and out the other. So you have to follow that up with, hey, that, 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 I'm doing training. I'm usually saying, well, that means four of us in this room right now. <laughs> if anybody's going to, you know, we try to, again, without sticking it up, we just try to, you know, make it something memorable so that a week later, you haven't totally forgotten about what you just learned and what you heard. You're, you kind of remember, hey, hey this, this stomach bug thing is, is, is very important. So, yeah. Um, okay, let's go to question number three, 
Okay, real quick, we'll bury it in the middle of the podcast so people have to listen to the whole thing. What are the big five things that you mentioned earlier that, that a good food safety culture has to have? Well, it's buried in here. We'll tease okay. it in the notes. <laughs> uh, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I'll go through it quickly. So I think number one, at the, I put it at the, I, I, there is an order here, but it, it doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's set in stone, but I, I do have at the top of my list, you know, you must have a, you must be or have a person who's a model for foodborne illness prevention uh, by using the, the principles of HACCP while they supervise the operation. And so I think you, you really, you have to model foodborne illness prevention and it's a part of what we do and it needs to be a part of what we do at all times. And that's the overarching objective. Number two, really, you, you have to, on a day-to-day -day basis, you have to be aware of employees who show signs and symptoms of an illness that's known to be transmitted through food. And from there, where you go with it, it depends on the circumstances, but you have to take swift action to restrict or exclude them. And that's food code language, but you have to restrict or exclude them from the establishment. Because why? Because they can, they can make a lot of other people sick with their illness if they're allowed to be in the workplace while they, while they have it. Uh, number three is you, you need to constantly supervise the operation to be sure that if and when you have an imminent health hazard, you can mitigate it promptly and without incident. And that's kind of the language that I put in my, my free guidance document. And the imminent health hazard, it, it just, you know, I think we all understand that if you lose power, you're, you're losing refrigeration for your cold foods, you're, uh, you know, if you have a flood, you're, you're exposing equipment and food contact surfaces to sewage organisms. So those sorts of things, very, very important that you are always alert to, the, to imminent health hazards and can deal with them or have someone who can deal with them. I think number four for me was does it, to have a person in charge who's got knowledge of the top five risk factors for, for foodborne illness and, and there's science there. So the FDA has said, hey, these these five categories, these five, you know, areas uh, have to be under control at all times in order to prevent foodborne illness or reduce, greatly reduce the likelihood of foodborne illness. And then finally, I think uh, as an operation, you, you do need an effective food safety management uh, system or policy or procedure, something that establishes training requirements and incorporates specific elements of, of programs. Uh, do you have a temperature control program? Do you have a, a cleaning schedule and maintenance program? So those those sorts of things are important as well. Um, and that's what I got. Nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, my, the first one, excuse me, the first one, I smoke a lot of cigars. So every time I hear my voice on this thing, I'm like, good Lord, you got to quit the cigars. But uh, <laughs> uh, you sound great. Oh, good. Thank you. You got a good uh, voice for this. <laughs> a good I, radio I, voice. I have a good face for radio, too, as they say. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's interesting because during COVID, we were one of the first, like, like I read everything because there, there was no work going on. Like, no one was buying anything. So I was like, well, okay. Uh, luckily for us, all of our clients, like, we have mm -hmm. very, we have really good big restaurant companies that work with us, but they're uh -huh. also very proactive companies because they're on the cutting edge of technology utilizing our platform not like i'm just saying that because it's our platform but you know 
most people still use paper for all of this. And so the people that are using software, um, you know, they have an advantage because they're, they are on the cutting edge because this is new technology. But one of the things that we developed for COVID was a at-home screen where you could, as an employee, open up your phone, take mm. your temperature, take a picture of your thermometer, you mm. know, and, and like fill out your questionnaire. And then it would tell you, call your manager, you're sick, you can't come to work, or hey, you're clear to come to work, we'll see you on your shift begins. And they could do it an hour before their shift, which was mm -hmm. important because this was actually developed for some hotels in San Francisco. Well, driving into San Francisco is a pain in the butt and parking is a pain in the butt. And then getting to the front door with COVID, or excuse me, the back door with COVID, and then you know now we gotta clean the whole back door, there's 50 employees mm -hmm. around you, no one knew what was going on. But so that was the one that really struck me was you've got to have something in place that says, are you well? And, um, you know, can you work? You know what I mean? Like, because that's probably the other stuff's pretty, you know, memorialized, but like that, that's a new thing. And that's also a new thing that with all these other very progressive labor laws around the country, it could be a real pain in the butt for the manager too. Well, I can't send this guy home. I got to pay him, you know, like, because I sent him home last minute. I might even get fined for it. You know, like, I don't know how that, well, yeah. all, but that's a very interesting sort of thought. I, but, I, I think it's important. I just add that, you know, and that was the keystone failure at, at Chipotle in, in that 2015 outbreak. That was the first domino uh, to fall was that, uh, you know, a dishwasher came to work and, and discharged the virus at work. Uh, yeah. And from there, you can still prevent a catastrophe. But there, unfortunately, were a series of other failures. But if you go back to that initial, well, who didn't screen the employee? Who wasn't looking out for signs and symptoms? Who didn't take the correct steps to re exclude that person? So, yeah, that's it's so important. And it's something I think that you take for granted a lot of times. You assume that, you know, um, you'll know how to separate the, the you know the, the, someone once said to me the brown bottle flu you, you know yeah. so yeah you you went you had a little too much to drink the night before well that's yeah. only a problem for me if you throw up in my establishment because now you're you're exposing you know you 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 discharge potentially norovirus and maybe other other you know viral organisms as well so but uh that's not the same as someone who is showing you know, going three trips to the bathroom every hour. And, and that's a very different thing. But again, it's not just about the policy. You've got to have the people, in, you know, who understand what to do in those situations, who are looking out for those signs and symptoms. And, you know, it's another key point I stress in training is that, you know, if you see something, speak up, you know, something doesn't look right to you because it could it could make all the difference right there. And don't be afraid to say, hey, you know, I, I, I noticed something that wasn't didn't look good to me and raise it up to supervise or someone who can evaluate it, so. Well, and in the short term with the staffing problem, the reason, the issue is, is that, you know, there's no backup. So this guy goes out sick. A lot of managers are thinking very short term, well, now no one's covering that station. We're busy, we're gonna lose money. I, or I'm gonna have to do it, you know, whatever it is. So they make a, they make the, a poor, they make a poor long-term decision, you know, because they're like, ah, I just can't let this guy go, right? And or the person's thinking, I'm broke. I need this shift. I need these dollars to pay my bills. You know, gas is 
five bucks a gallon. So it, it is really tough. And when you it's don't complex. have backup staff, it just makes it even tougher for these guys to make the good, smart decision. But then, like you said, 99.9% of the time, this is going to, it's prevent the, you know, the consequence, the consequence for messing this up is so high, you know? Yeah, it, it's, it, you're right. It's not, it's not an area where you want to, you know, um, you know, as I say, walk into the casino and start gambling uh, frivolously because you, you know, there is a fine line and you're right. I mean, you know, in, in these times that there's a lot of, you know, moving parts to this and a lot, it's very complex, you know, where's that fine line? Well, I need, I, I'm, I need my staff to be at work. I need them to be productive and, and I can't afford to have anybody, you know, out sick. But then again, if they're, if they're yeah. here sick, I can't afford that either. And how do I, and I think that, and there's some guidance documents and things out there, but there's no substitute for real world examples and really good training about, you know, like, what do you do if, if this situation presents itself? And some companies have done very well in that regard and others, not so much so, but um, it's a very important thing. And that's why I have it at, at the top of my list, only behind preventing foodborne illness, because again, we just need that in a flashing neon sign to, I think, to you know, remind people that that's, that's the number one priority each and every day. That's, that's what we need to be doing. So, yeah. So you kind of answer question number four, but we'll just touch uh -huh. on it again. What is the one thing you thought your industry would be doing right now that it isn't? Yeah. So I, I, at this point of the interview, you, you probably already would know what I'd say. More, more is more, not less is more. So I think, you know, restaurants have and will continue to face more challenges than, than ever before. And, you know, a lot of people would agree that even the most successful ones are probably surviving on a, on a profit margin in the single digits. And then when you factor in, as we've been talking about the risk and potential liability for, um, you know, for, for providing a service that in the COVID era was de deemed essential, you know, restaurants are essential businesses. Um, but here we are and we're kind of like, you know, a big bullseye on our back because, you know, any number of things go wrong and, and, and we can, you know, we, we have liability. So the returns don't sometimes seem to add up. So it's important to remember, I think that, you know, really important to remember that restaurants are not just food service. In addition, you know, to their menus, their places that we like to gather at, places to spend time with family and friends, places to watch sports, places to experience culture. And so we really shouldn't be complacent when they struggle to keep the lights on. And if we value them as integral parts of our communities, then Yes, the industry does need, I think, to do a better job of, you know, representing the interest of restaurants and playing a, 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 a an important part in their success. And then where you where we go from there in terms of well, you know, better use of information and technology, making resources more available, uh, collecting more data, surveying them to find out what their needs are. You know, there's a lot of different pathways there. I think that, and I know that there's some very important efforts um under you know underway and ongoing and that is helpful but it is i think a very challenging time for restaurants and on the whole and i think more does need to be done well and I, so i'm generally don't what i generally as a small business owner hate government interference in my life like yeah every 
you know, we've, we've started growing our business and now we have people in Ohio and Minnesota. And, you know, it's, thank God my business partners do that. But like every, it just, every interaction with the government's always painful for the most part. Like it just is, it's, it can't be, they, they just don't have the, there's not, they don't have the natural incentive to be great, uh, you know, like a company does because they have a budget, whatever, it doesn't matter. I generally, dis, so I generally don't want a lot of government interference, but I do think that the FDA and the food code is, uh, be, the, the system as it is today is kind of BS. And I think we need a national, we, okay, the food code is a national food safety standard. But if you read the food code, which I have done, and it says we're exempting like single unit operators from doing any kind of HACCP because we think it may be too complex for them to do, which if you actually read HACCP, it is not. There are four or five hazard points in most businesses that you can easily address. Mm -hmm. Like, so like we have a food code, but then we say the bulk, by the way, the bulk of the restaurants in the country probably I would suggest 700,000 of the 1.15 million kitchens in the country are independent restaurants. Mm -hmm. Probably three to 400,000 units of chains, right? Mm -hmm. And then whatever. So I think we need a national food safety standard that's applied to every single restaurant. I think everything has to be digital. And I think there should just be a basic standard, not, not like, like a basic standard from every every jurisdiction in the country, there are 3,300 health departments or something like that. That mm -hmm. we all we all have to do the same thing. It it this is an area that just makes sense to have a little bit more regulation on because you know a it would make the workforce more educated on food safety if we just had one standard that was applied equally across the country. Every boat would rise together. If you had to, you know, if you were working mm -hmm. in a kitchen, you had to pass a minimum qualification test, right? And you just had, and may, you don't even necessarily have to like, it doesn't have to go to some testing authority. It could just be, you have to have for every active employee, a copy of their past test, right? And it should all be digital. Well, when I say digital, obviously I have an app that does this. Yeah, I'd love you to buy mine, but I think digital means Excel. I think digital means Google Sheets, which is free. Like it can be any number of things, but like if there is an outbreak, an inspector like yourself needs to be able to come in and somebody needs to be able to show them real data that they can then put into a CSV file and send back to corporate or to the health department and people can start combing through it and try to figure out what it is. You know, like, I, I don't know. I just think, and you, I, you're yeah. see it. Unless I like it. Yeah. Well, I like what you're saying. I recently played around with um, forms from a company called Typeform, these digital forms that use logic and you can script questions. And based on the answers to those questions, it can ask follow-up questions. Yeah. And it, it's not in the freaky domain of AI or anything. It's just it's just logic-based Q&A that, you know, and I was tinkering with some of these forms thinking, well, how can we do, let's do one for an employee health policy. So you're going to screen or, you know, because you can automate that. You know, yeah. you can you you can send the form link to each and every employee and say, I need this done before every shift. If you want to really, you know, get automated with it and 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 then you can review the results and you can, you know, and I know that's a bit onerous. It seems a bit onerous maybe, but again, you know, COVID taught us that, well, 
all of a sudden now this is in your lap. The, the public yeah. health order re requires you to do this. And a lot of people are scrambling to find out how do I get a text message from them? Do I, you know, how do I do this? So if we've got some of this, you know, these, we've got this technology, right? So we can utilize it to our, to our advantage. And I, going back to what you said with the regulation, I, I sort of see it in a similar way in that I think it's a tiered approach. I think your tier one priorities, well, we just kind of, we just talked about what some of those might look like. And then maybe your tier two priorities are, you know, what, what comes after that's the op, more the operational side of things, taking temperatures of my TCS foods and making sure that, you know, my, my dish machine is sanitizing when it, every cycle and, and all those duties in charge kind of stuff. And then maybe my tier three, you know, approaches, but what I, I, you're not going to, you know, hit the bullseye for every type of operator, every type of business, but you do need, I, I agree with you. You do need something that is more, I, I think less mysterious. I, a lot of, I still, very common for me to, to still talk to folks and say that, well, I, you know, what, what's your biggest challenge? Well, you know, I've got, I've got a, a chain operation and in this jurisdiction they want me to do this and then that one they want me to do that well heck even even within the same jurisdiction the inspectors want different things from one inspection to the next visit and that's why it's such a moving target for me that makes it very difficult and i totally empathize i think that that's a bit of a disservice to licensees because you know you're i understand you can't see everything all at once and at all times but you do need to be consistent because you if you're not consistent you're going to be in their mind, they're going to see it as, well, last time, you know, what was important to them was how I was cooling my foods. This time they talked about, you know, my employee storing their cell phone on, on the work table next to where they were prepping foods. And so, you know, it, it kind of creates this, what, what will it be next time kind of thinking? And, <laughs> I have consistency and that, that, and you know, you see that in other parts of our society too, like laws that are on the books that should have been, they, they should like expire. Yeah. But then, you know, they, they got this guy on a law from 1862 and you're like, are you kidding me? Like, really? Like this stuff like that. Like they're just, yeah. In my opinion, we need a national standard for food safety and that we should not be exempting the largest. And I would argue in most cases, the least sophisticated operators from the food safety standard. It's, it's what McDonald's has, I don't know, 50 or hundred people working over there figuring out food safety. The guy down the street who's got his own little burger stand has got him and he's getting mm -hmm. that's a very small point of what he does. But mm -hmm. every single person should be mandated. If you're going to be working around food, you should be mandated to have a very basic knowledge of the most critical things. And that's what it should be. We should just identify the most critical things, right? And just train on those. Like, Temperature, reheating, cross-contamination, storage, expiration dates. It's the big stuff, yeah. right? Like and I think that's nuanced. But right. everyone's I, right. Go ahead. So, Sorry. No, no. Everyone's got a refrigerator. Everyone's got a steam table. Everyone's heating stuff up. Those are those are things that doesn't matter if you have if you're selling burritos or Indian food. Those are commonalities that we should be able to train you on so you know, right? And, I agree. It speaks to the risk-based approach that the FDA advocates for. And then it also, you know, the 80-20 yeah. rule, you spend 80% of your time on, on that, you know, part of it that is most critical. And the other 20%, it's a lot less likely, far less likely to cause foodborne illness. So you don't make that your priority, but it's still important to you. But, you know, but, it, you know, 
some businesses have have you know confused priorities and understandably so again back to what the you know the health and health department health inspectors and all that variability that goes along with it uh, it can it can present problems it can also be good in the sense that it's flexible in the way that you know i don't have to follow a script i don't have to we can go off script a little bit here if you say to me today i want your inspection to really focus on my dishwashing procedures give me some training i got a new dishwasher hey well Let's make this inspection a training inspection then. And I think that's also something that, you know, health departments, regulatory authorities, they all need to be a bit flexible in this to, to sort of, you know, and, and be able to see what, what, what the needs of the operation are and where, where are they going to get the most bang for their buck? Where am I going to reduce the risk, the, 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 the greatest on this visit, or what can I do to make the biggest impact for this operator? And again, you're right. And I, I put this as part of my, wish list as well is that we need to do this in every language that's represented in the demographic in the in the in the jurisdiction and we need to do it not only in in a native tongue for those folks but also in a common language that we can agree that this this makes sense we're not using big words we're not using words that you know are un, completely unfamiliar you know we're, we're speaking in in general terms in terms of concepts you know concept of her good personal hygiene the concept of you know good temperature control practice you know things like that. So. Absolutely. So I'm off my soapbox now. Uh, <laughs> your podcast. Uh, number five, question number five, war story time. Give us a really funny or cringeworthy story. Oh, wow. Uh, well, <laughs> as you would guess, I think 20, 20 years of health department work experience brought, brought a couple of war stories. Some of which made me question the line of work I had chosen, and others were sort of like, I guess, maybe a, you know, kind of a rite of passage. So, but the more colorful ones definitely came during my time in Australia, but but not big city Australia. You know, I was in a in a rural farm-centered town uh, on the edge of the outback territory, so I was actually quite a curiosity to most citizens because, you know, Toowoomba wasn't exactly a popular destination for college educated american transplants who wanted to work for their local health department so so uh not to mention an, an american bloke working as a government delegate that far from the big city was was also a head scratcher for a lot of people i think you know what what stands out to me was my first week on the job i think and and going out with um going out with one of the uh long tenured inspectors there who we went onto a property to do a what they called uh i think in terms of like i guess a a, a hazmat type licensee who's got a motor vehicle workshop or shed and he's working on cars and this was you know and again this was all completely new to me I was, it's like less than two weeks in the country first week on the job first time even venturing outside of the central business district so I guess the interesting thing, the, the colorful thing, the thing that will always stand out to me, um, this person, we walk onto the property, very sketchy, you know, dog behind a fence barking at us, trying to trying to get over the fence to get at us. And we didn't know where this work shed was located. And we finally find it. And there's a man under the hood of a car. And we, we asked for, you know, the licensee's name and he lifts his head up and and you know he's as soon as he speaks we could tell he was he was pissed in australian terms he was drunk you know it's 10 o'clock in the morning what, what are you doing drunk 10 o'clock in the morning 
And well, he gave us the business like no one ever has, at least not for me. And I think Stacy, my colleague, had had seen 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 the likes of that behavior before, but I certainly had not. And I was asked, um, I, I was asked at a later point in time. We walked around the property, we saw a couple of issues, and but he was really giving it to us. We were copping it. And in, in a, not in a threatening way, but I would say in a, in a very inappropriate way, uncomfortable jokes and sarcasm mm -hmm. and things. And so I was a the person uh, I'm, I'm, I'm and again, I'm, I'm training at this point. So I'm, I'm you know, Stacy says, Mark, we'll write the report here and, and give us a couple of minutes. We'll tell you what our, our observations are. And there's a few moments of silence and I'm trying my best, my hand shaking. You know, I'm trying to start this report. What do I write? What do I put? And uh, this this person asks me. He says, "Do you have a rubber neck?" And I said, "What? He said, Pardon me, sir." He says, "Do you have a rubber neck?" And I said, "No." And he, I said, "Why?" So you can wrap it around your backside and kiss your own ass with it. And um, <laughs> and uh, and then he went along with a couple of more jokes. Um, you know, examined my name on the report. Says, "Oh, you're Jewish, are you?" I mean, just stuff like that. And I, I remember, I mean, at, at, at the end of that inspection, I, I, I wanted to go home and hide under the covers for a week. I was really beaten up by that. And I just, it's, it, that was my worst story, I guess. <laughs> That's a tough one. Jeez. Yeah. You know, that guy lives out there because he doesn't like authority. You know what I mean? He, oh, if he so much so, that type. Yeah. City. But he lives at 100 miles from anywhere because he's like, you know what? No one's coming out here to bug me. And now you're coming out here. Who am I bothering? You know what I mean? It's a desert, basically. It's probably what yeah, I, I, I left out the best part, which was that when, you know, when, when we when we uttered the first words and he had his head under the hood of a car and we said and Stacy said very politely and in, in her you know, very quiet, shy tone, she said, well, sir, we're here to do an inspection. And he he lifts his head up and he says, "Don't need one." <laughs> and that talk about something that'll stop you in your tracks. Well, what do you come what do you come back with for that? He he doesn't need one. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Have a good day. Was we'll, you know, I mean, that's probably what we should have done, but we we decided to press on and and do our job, and that that of course led to a whole other experience. That again, these are the things that you know. Uh, you you kind of earn your stripes with so. <laughs> Well, I will put the uh, Food Truck website up on the, the podcast notes, Mark. And I just want to say oh, thank, thank you. you so much uh, for coming on today and hanging out with us. And to all the listeners, we will have more interviews soon.